Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talks show. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Joining me today is a man that I actually met a, about a year and a half ago uh, here in New York City, and he is and has done some absolutely incredible work. So joining me today is Dan Schauble, and he's a New York Times bestselling author, partner and research director at Future Workplace, and the founder of both Millennial Branding and WorkplaceTrends.com. He's a best-selling author of two career books. One's called Promote Yourself and Me 2.0. His new book, Back to Human, How Great Leaders Create Connection in the Age of Isolation, was selected by the Financial Times as the book of the month. Uh, through his companies, he's conducted dozens of research studies and worked with major brands, including such companies as American Express, GE, Microsoft, Virgin, IBM, Coca-Cola, and Oracle, to name a few. He has interviewed, to get this, over 2,000 of the world's most successful people, including Warren Buffett, Anthony Bourdain, Jessica Alba, Will I Am, Michael Bloomberg, Chelsea Handler, Colin Powell, Sharon Sandberg, and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, he's the host of a podcast called The Five Questions with Dan Schauble. Uh, and he has really done some incredible things. He's been featured in all sorts of media platforms like Forbes and Fortune and Time and The Economist and just, I mean, the list goes on and on and on and all of our platforms. He's really been referred to uh, by a lot of media sources for the work that he's done. And today, him and I are, are diving into an interesting topic. So we actually, we actually start off by talking about the dark side of motivation and uh, what he calls dark motivation and how that drove his life and how basically uh, it was the force behind a lot of the success that he accomplished in his 20s. And I think this is a very interesting topic because it actually came out of uh, some trauma, some uh, wounding in his childhood. And so Dan opens up about that and shares his journey, uh, which is very incredible because I think a lot of us can relate to dark motivation. And uh, it's something, so we talk about dark motivation and light motivation, uh, how the two differ, how they show up in our lives and, and what the outcomes usually are of those two and how to shift from one to the other. Then uh, we go into isolation and we start talking a little bit about isolation in the workplace and at home. And Dan shares uh, some insight from research studies that uh, he found, but that he's also been a part of. Uh, and shifts into the space of, of of talking about how to create more connectivity, more connection and community uh, within your life, within your personal life, and within your work environment. And so in an age where, uh, I read this the other day, by 2025, something like 45% of jobs will be freelance. More and more people, maybe people like yourself, are starting to work remotely, are starting to travel and it becomes a little bit more challenging with the rise of technology and some of these freelance jobs to maintain a grounded community. So that's what we talk about extensively in this podcast. 
Uh, so before I bring Dan on, just a quick reminder, guys, head on over to Facebook, join the free Facebook community. Uh, we've got some amazing conversations going on there. And if you're looking to go a little bit deeper, you can either join uh, the Alliance, which is an amazing group of men that meet every single week virtually, or you can check out the Men's Weekend, which is going to be coming up uh, May 17th to 20th. And I'll be leading that personally on the west coast of Canada. It's going to be on the Sunshine Coast. And we've rented out this beautiful place. And we will have a small group of men from all over North America converging to do some work on their relationships, on their sex and intimacy, on their purpose and defining their life purpose and starting to embody and embrace um, masculine leadership and some of these qualities that really can help you not only achieve the results that you want in your life, but to do them in such a way that you are fulfilled while you're walking your path, while you are on your journey. So uh, definitely check that out on mantalks.com and feel free to apply and, and uh, book a time to chat with me in person. So that's it for right now. And without any further delay, please welcome Dan Schauble. So happy to be here with you. Yeah, man. Likewise, it's it's interesting. I've I've seen your work around, and you know, we met for, through a, a mutual acquaintance last year. And when I saw your your name coming up in the calendar uh, for the interview, I was excited because you have done some amazing, amazing things, and you've been uh, you know really connected with and interviewed a, a lot of incredible people. So I'm excited to hear some of the the wisdom that you have for us today. Um, so. With that in mind, with no pressure, <laughs> but with that in mind, uh, I'm going to start off with the question that I ask all of our guests, which is, tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. I go back to my early childhood when I was eight years old. And so I never fit in. I was always bullied and made fun of for many, 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 many years. I mean, up until maybe like 22 years old, like after graduating from college. But back then... You know, I I go to school and I just was different. And when you're different, and for me, I suffered from anxiety. And back when I was a little kid, I didn't know I had anxiety. Uh, anxiety has just become a big thing now. It's the number one mental illness. Uh, people can feel anxious, but mental, uh, in terms of a mental illness, actually, anxiety it's a big deal and it affects you know uh, a good percentage of the population. I believe it's twenty percent. And so for me, I would come home from school and I would just be so upset. I'd, I'd shoot hoops. That was my way of, uh, it was like a coping mechanism. And I remember when I was about eight or nine years old, I would, you know, come home and there was this one instance where I would like literally cry into my pillow being, and I would say this, I said, I don't fit in, I'll never fit in. And then I used the word, but, which was really, really a defining part of this was, but maybe I don't fit in because I'm special and someday I'll do something great. So the maybe, the but, that kind of changed it from a negative to a, a, a positive as in it gave me hope. It said, okay, well, it's going to be very hard for me to fit in in school, but maybe someday the reason why I don't fit in is going to be an advantage for me. And I think that if I didn't turn that around, if I didn't have it be more hopeful, it would have probably sunk me, you know, deeper into depression. It could, could have been, you know, really bad for me when I was a little kid. But because there was hope, because I, uh, ch you know, 
turned the negative into a positive. It, it just was the hope and the kind of confidence that things would work out that drove me long term. I think that's one of the underlying underneath the, um, you know, underneath all of the success and things that I've done in my life. It's because I had that hope, that hope that was triggered when I was a little kid. Mm, yeah, that's interesting, man. I mean, you know, bullying as as a kid is, you know, such a, unfortunately, it's such a big part of of the sort of, you know, culture and schools and, and whatnot. Now, I'm curious how, you know, how bullying showed up for you and how that sort of shaped what, you know, later on in your life, when you look back, uh, as, as, as you look back, you know, it sounds like you had some good realizations and lessons and being able to turn that and sort of reframe that bullying. But I'm curious when you look back at your childhood and, and you look at how you were bullied, how, how did you see that sort of uh, impacting the anxiety that you had as a kid? Because I would imagine that was maybe a big part of it. The anxiety actually triggered the bullying because mm. if you're anxious, if you're stuttering on your words, people view that as weakness, not as strength. And so you become a big target to get bullied. And for me, I was bullied by friends. So I had, there was a friend I had in high school where if I said something, he would immediately think, say that it was dumb. So every day it was drilled into me that everything I was saying was dumb or stupid or didn't make sense. And therefore, I'm less likely to say something. So if you're getting bullied on a daily basis over a long period of time, it almost makes you want to be mute because there's almost like a punishment when you open your mouth. Yeah. Um, so I had that. I had in elementary school, third grade, I had a teacher who put me in a closet. So this is obviously you can't do this anymore. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say then, I was like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, and then my the prior generation, why my my parents were like, oh, okay, that's interesting because you know they used to slap students and spank yeah. students, and so things things had changed a little bit. But you know, to be in a closet is kind of bizarre looking back at it. But yeah, it was like always getting punished, always in trouble, and then you know to have your friends do it, to have teachers do it, to just you know, not be taken seriously to be isolated. It was very, very hard growing up. Um, but I think, you know, after having conversations and I'm sure you've had conversations with a lot of people who've been bullied, a lot of the people who've been bullied, bullied when they were younger ended up becoming big successes because throughout your life, you're always trying to prove people wrong. You're trying to prove the bullies wrong. You're trying to gain, gain the validation you never did when you were growing up. And I think that that, uh, you know, I call it the dark side of motivation, that dark side of motivation really propelled me in my 20s. So like all the achievements and everything, a lot of that was driven by my need for enormous amounts of validation. I actually believe that all the validation I got in my 20s, I needed in order to combat all the bullying I got uh, growing up. I really believe that. And so now I'm at a point at 35 where I don't really need the dark side of motivation anymore. I don't even feel it anymore, right? And the dark side of motivation can also manifest in ego. And I feel like I don't really have that anymore too. And, and you know when you have an ego, you can feel the ego if you're somewhat self-aware. And I feel like that's, that's kind of gone too. I don't even need recognition as much anymore. I'm just trying to do what I want to do, what I'm good at, and, and continue to learn and develop. Uh, the light side of motivation is doing the right thing, serving other people, and having a bigger cause, something that affects people uh, on a grander scale. Could be your community, could be your 
friend group, could be the world as, as a whole. And so I think that that's more where I am now. And I think what's interesting is the dark side of motivation, which is, you know, the validation, the ego, all this, the, the uh, negative or, or dark, you know, motivators, uh, that's more powerful than the light side. So the dark motivation can actually make you work harder and achieve more than the light side in most instances. But I think, I think over time, the dark side could lead you into bad territory that can be very yeah. unhealthy. Right. Yeah, I was going to say, it seems like I could lead you, you know, I, I actually think that, you know, the, this is such an interesting topic, right? This dark and light side of motivation. And I'm not too sure I've heard many people phrase it like that or coin it like that, but it, you know, it really makes sense that out of these, out of these wounding and traumatic experiences, uh, uh, you know, as kids, which a lot of people go through, a lot of people go through that, that's, you know, experience of being incredibly bullied or, you know, they start off their careers. I, I'm, what came to mind is, uh, that, that recent movie, a store, a star is born with, uh, Lady Gaga. And, um, I can't remember the, the, the guy's name. Um, but you know, she in the movie talks about, um, being turned down for gigs because, you know, she's told that she's too ugly or, you know, not in good enough shape mm. or has a big enough nose. And those were actually real life rejections that she faced in the beginning of her career. And I think that, you know, many of us have, have experienced this, whether, you know, we had parents that you know, maybe were verbally abusive or emotionally abusive, or, you know, told that, you know, told us things like you're not good enough, or you'll never succeed or teachers or friends. So it's interesting that you're talking about this dark motivation. Do you feel like that that can be, uh, do you feel like that dark motivation, if we're aware of it, can be leveraged? Or do you feel like it's something that we need to move through in order to get to the light side of motivation? I think that's a really good question. I would say that I didn't realize that there was a dark side of motivation. I wasn't self-aware. I felt the ego. I felt, I felt that I was doing it for in order to kind of to kind of combat the bullying but i didn't recognize the dark and the light i didn't separate it in my head even though you see it in movies right like good guy bad guy star wars light and dark side you know jedi siths i think that but once you realize it once you've been through a lot once you've achieved a lot then for me i took a step back and i said okay what's really happening here why don't i feel as motivated anymore i Honestly, I was in my 20s, I was 10 times more motivated and hardworking than I am today. And, and I think that the dark side can drive you to work harder and to potentially achieve more, potentially, right? It could also bring you down, right? Big ego, it's hard for you to get along with other people, serve their needs. There's can be a lot of issues with that, especially when you have a company like I have. Uh, but I think in the long run, Serving the light side is really important because it gives you it gives you meeting far beyond the validation you get from the dark side. And I think once yeah. you've been validated, so for instance, I would say before I turned 30, right before I turned 30, I was validated at a level that made me feel like I didn't need that as much anymore. And now after now this back to human is my third book and you know, I've built and sold a company. I have, you know, all you know do me doing another research study, me doing another book. It's great, but I've already done so much. So I, I think psychologically for me, because I've done so much, it makes me not have as much of the dark side because I don't need, I don't need to tap into the dark side. Like I did. I don't need to work over a hundred hours a week. Like I did. 
And mm. so I think being self-aware is so important to a point where I never used to be like this, by the way, in my early 20s. But now at 35, I'll, I can say something and then autocorrect that, meaning like, oh, I said the wrong thing and I apologize. So I almost po- apologize before I get a reaction from someone else because I know I might be coming off the wrong way. And I think it's just living a long time, becoming more self-aware, um, you know, being in many different experiences. Over time, you can tap into light and dark side. You can realize what's happening. You can, you can almost self-correct and uh, go in different directions because you've been through a lot. And so I do think my younger self, if I, you know, I would love to give a hug to my 22, 23-year-old self, maybe even my 13-year-old self, because that was when I first started uh, out in the workforce as a caterer for my temple and th- at 13 years old and first internship in high school and all of these moments of collecting experiences and connecting with different people have been incredibly useful for me long-term. And so all those sacrifices I made, all that work I put in, tapping into the dark side, I don't regret anything. I don't regret anything. I think I need to go in there to have a better outlook. And now, you know, for your, all of your listeners, they're kind of getting a glimpse into my head at home thinking and 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 me admitting that I, I was motivated from the dark side, I think is useful because a lot of people are without realizing it. And yep. now that I know that, now that I can kind of prioritize the light side because I don't need the validation anymore, I think that can that will help me in my decision making moving forward. Yeah, I, I love that. I mean, I love the analogy, the Star Wars analogy, <laughs> obviously, the, you know, like the light, the light and the dark side and the, you know, the the different sort of forces and polarities of motivation. And it's, you know, it, it's so true that it can be incredibly powerful that, you know, sort of not leveraging it, but knowing that that's there and knowing that that force is there propelling us forward and that it can produce some incredible results. But but maybe, you know, a lot of the guys that, that end up coming to work with me, regardless of their age, sometimes they've had that younger childhood, either wounding or trauma or something happened where they were told they couldn't do something or weren't good enough to do it. And then they've sort of set out on their life to prove that narrative, that story or that person wrong. And then they find themselves on the other side of having done that. And, and there's sort of, there's something missing, you know, and I think what's interesting, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show and wanted to have you on the podcast was you know not only just to talk about the the latest book that you wrote, but a big part of it is is revolving around the age of isolation, and I, I'm curious if you see a, a correlation between this dark side of the you know dark side of motivation and and somewhat a sense of 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 isolation because for me what I've seen when I've gone through that that space that phase of using the dark side of mo- motivation. Those, those are some of the loneliest periods of my life, the loneliest years of my life where I seemed to just be immersed in this like unconscious mission. So I'm curious what your experience of that is and if you see any correlation between the two. I'm fortunate in one respect that when I was tapping into the dark side, I was still doing what I loved. Like I'm still, I'm still in a sense just doing a, uh, a bigger, better uh, higher level version of what I was doing in my early 20s. So I'm still doing what I love. That hasn't changed. I think one mm-hmm. of the things that has changed was a lack of fulfillment in relationships in my early 20s, right? Because, you know, I grew up as an only child too. So, you know, you get you get into this, you know, path of everything being about you. Um, but because of my parents, and they did a great job parenting me, and because I recognized very early, like I've interviewed over 2,000 people. I have, you know, great friend groups and 
and well, in a, you know, great relationships is because I always prioritize people. So despite the fact that I felt isolated in my head and that I was motivated on the dark side, I also knew that in order for me to move forward and be successful, that people were the biggest asset for sure. I still mm-hmm. believe it. Uh, I still bet on people. And the the difference though is that the way in which I connected with people was isolating. It was all virtual. Well, I was very early into blogging in 2006 and just leaving comments, writing blog posts. So that in itself is isolating when you're spending so much of your time using the technology to connect instead of having in-person relationships. It wasn't really until, you know, maybe five or so years into it where I felt very isolated. I'm like, oh, I got to, I got to make changes. And now, especially in my 30s, I prioritize human contact over anything. And, you know, like I was saying back to human, it's I use technology as a bridge to human relationships. I don't let it isolate me from the very relationships I'm trying to create that will make me more fulfilled and happy in my life. So I think that that is the key message is, you know, it's very easy to spend time using technology. In fact, in the study in the book with Virgin Pulse of over 2,000 managers, employees in 10 countries, we found that about half of our day is spent using use, using technology and we choose email over almost everything else. And now with teenagers choosing to text instead of having in-person relationships and conversations, I think that, you know, being more human is more important than ever before. Uh, I just read a recent article by Forrester Research and they said this year is the year of, of uh, the human. <laughs> because a lot of people are backlashing against all this artificial intelligence. And I think the big question moving forward in society is with all this artificial intelligence, what are humans going to be doing? I think that's so mm. fascinating. And that those, those are the kind of conversations that I'm having now, uh, especially writing this book and doing the research and just hearing from you know high-level HR executives at big companies that we serve. Th- those are the conversations that we're having. And I think it doesn't just affect corporations. It's daily life, right? Like if there's driverless cars, what do, what do all the you know truck drivers do and the Uber drivers? So it, it lends to these bigger conversations that I think are so fascinating. And from a personal level, it's, it's how do we let, this is how I think about, how do we let technology remove the tasks that we don't even want to do, right? Like scheduling a meeting, I mean, you you use technology that kind of eliminates a lot of that, right? Mm-hmm. The schedulers. Uh, so that's one last thing you have to think of. So you can do more of the things that are high impact and more personal. So what's going to happen? I think this is really, really interesting. I've been thinking about this for months. I think every single day, the value of IQ declines and the value of EQ uh, accelerates. So I think we'll wake up in the future and everything that was done with IQ is going to be automated. This is just how I view the future. And I think that we're going to be left with our basic humanity, with, uh, you know, all the soft skills that we might take for granted right now, our ability to present in front of others, form relationships, sell, like all of these things are just going to become more important, being able to operate the robots, right? And Mm. so, so I think that having good conversations, being able to relate to people, delegating work uh, to humans and machines and knowing what to do when, all of these things are just going to become more valuable in society. And the sooner we wrap our heads around it, the better. There was a study by LinkedIn about the skills that are going to be important for the future, soft skills. That's number one. 
And it's, it's something I wrote about in Promote Yourself. Obviously, Back to Human, it's, it's really at its core, right? If you look at my first two books, they're about more or less doing the work to get ahead. And now with Back to Human, it's, it's about the people element. It's like, because work is the work you do and who you do it with, right? Mm-hmm. We get all wrapped up around the companies we work with and the industry, the industry we're in. No, your employee experience, the experience that you have every day doing work is doing the work and then interfacing with other people that will help you move the work forward. Mm. And so I even believe that if you don't love what you do, but you have great colleagues and, and you have a leader that believes in you and is supporting you, you'll stay longer than if you love the work and you have toxic employees. So the people are more important than the work you actually do. Hmm. Yeah, I like that. I actually like that perspective. And I think that some companies that are out there, like I spent a few years working with Apple, and you, one of the big things that they really focus in on is this uh, EQ and, and sort of personal, the, the, the people component side of things, which is really uh, quite a huge focus for them. I, I really appreciate your perspective on, you know, things that are dominated by IQ will be automated because that really is it. You know, like when you look at the jobs of, of mobile devices and technology, it really is sort of taking over these the cognitive processing abilities that we would normally use our brains to sort of figure out and allows us to, to free up our time to be more uh, emotionally intelligent, connected, community builders, uh, speakers. So, so why is it then that in this sort of age of having technology take over some of those tasks that people seem to be more and more isolated, more and more lonely, whether it's at home or in the work environment or within communities? Because that seems to be a big part of, of your book. You know, you wrote this book, Back to Human, How Great Leaders Create Connections in the Age of Isolation. Maybe can we just start with how do you define the age of isolation and what are some of the things that are contributing to it? Great question. First and foremost, the technology companies are incentivized financially to get you addicted to technology, mm. right? So they hire all these firms that, that uh, help instruct them on how to create addictive technology. Right, because the more you use the phone, the more money they make. You know, they they make money based on your attention, and because the technology is addictive, and it it makes it uh, you know where there's a level of convenience you get with technology. So instead of having to walk ten blocks in New York to tell a friend something, you can just text them in five seconds. Right, and so the convenience factor. Is what people want. People want to do things on their time, and that that's kind of a habit that was created on technology. Uh, FOMO exists because of these technology devices. Instant gratification exists because of these technology devices. The technology that was created to addict us has created all these behaviors, behaviors that we couldn't have foreseen 10, 20 years ago. And so as we rely more and more on technology, it gets us further and further away from the basic human connections we need to survive and to function in and out of the workplace. And so we tap our devices over 2,600 times a day. We look at our phones every 12 minutes. We send an average of five texts during a meeting. It's gotten crazy. Uh, most people who I talk to respond to email outside of off, out of the office on weekends, on vacations. There's a, there's a guilt feeling we get if we aren't responding to email or texts on vacation because especially on, on that following Monday when we get back, we have 500 emails that we have to answer. So that's almost like a punishment for not responding to emails. 
So it's created very unhealthy behaviors and hurt our relationships because if we're not communicating in person or at least on the phone, a lot of bad things can happen. So for instance, the biggest thing from my research is that there's miscommunication, right? If you're texting, you can use a hundred emojis and people might not still understand what you mean. And they take it the wrong way, which creates fights in, in relationships, for instance. And actually, it's really, there was a study of emoji use in email. And if you send an emoji in an email, you're perceived as less competent, right? And this might change over time. In 20 years, when you have more Generation Z in the workplace, Gen Z it's, and teenagers are the first group to rather that, that choose to text over having a real conversation. And I think you're just going to see that enter the workplace and change things up uh, for potentially a, a bad way, right? Um, do you now, think that we should be? I just I just wanted to like just like touch on that for a second. Like, do you feel like we should be setting boundaries around some of that? Because like it it does seem somewhat, and I don't know if it's like an old school mentality, but it does seem somewhat like unprofessional in the work environment. You know, if you're working at like a law firm or something like that and you're communicating via emojis, via email, like it, it, it does, it, I mean, it's interesting because it does create a certain perception. And do you feel like in the future or even now that some companies will have to start instituting boundaries around some of these things? Like, you know, no using emojis in, in emails to, you know, client facing or internally? I think so, right? I think what happens is that once something doesn't go right because you've used emojis, you've texted, then you stop doing it, right? Because if a client is like, we're not going to sign with you again because of of the how unprofessional you are, you're probably not going to be unprofessional again. Yeah. So sometimes us as you, we have to learn the hard way. And then once that happens, then people start to change behavior because they feel like they have no choice. Otherwise, financially, it hurts them or, or in their relationships. So I think that sometimes people have to learn the hard way. Other, you know, we used to have guidelines back when I worked for a big company about what you should and shouldn't do. But policies are tough, right? Because then it becomes all about command and control leadership. And people don't want that. People want you know, leaders to inspire them, to encourage the best in all that they have to offer and to promote collaboration. And so the second you start to have all these, you know, formal policies, people are turned off, right? Because then you don't view, then you don't treat people like adults and people want to be treated like adults regardless of, of age, right? If you're 23 versus 36 versus 47. And so we have to be mindful of that. But I think overall, yeah, I think we should communicate expectations because the expectations we have should reflect the customer's expectations at the end of the day. If they want to see us in suits, it's hard for us not to be in suits because we'll lose the business. Um, but then at the same time, maybe you don't want to wear suits because that's the culture you want to establish. You're a new wave law firm or accounting firm, and you're going for maybe a younger customer that doesn't need you in suits. So you have to be thoughtful about all of that. Who are you going for? What what, the, what are the expectations? How do they best want to be communicated with? Like, for instance, with financial advisors now, there's a lot of robo-advisors. There's a lot of financial advisors using Skype and other technology to connect with younger investors. Hmm. Right. But that's just a change in the market. And and it's due to, you know, if, for instance, if your dad has been with a financial advisor and now you're old enough to want to get into the, you know, family, you know, finances, 
then the advisor might have to start using the technology to connect with you more, just out of necessity, mm-hmm. or they lose the account. So it's it's very interesting what's going to be happening, especially because most financial advisors, I'm just giving you an example, are much older. They're all almost all baby boomers. We're talking like 90%. Mm-hmm. So, so there's going to be a huge shift that way, and they're hurting. They're already trying to, how do we provide more value? I think that's that's something that they that a lot of the thing a lot of companies are struggling with a lot of professions is the internet in a sense is cutting out the middleman and and the customers becoming smarter because they have access to so much more so what is the role of you know a financial advisor or a law firm in a world where you know we can use you know turbotax and accounting software uh, legal software there's just so many different things that we can use now so mm-hmm. I think at the end of the day, the real value people are going to be providing is the personal touch. So we don't, we don't want to remove it. We can't, we shouldn't remove it. We shouldn't, you know, the more we try and remove the personal touch, the less value we offer and thus it hurts our career by doing so. We're almost yeah. our own worst enemy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're like creating the environment that we, that we don't want, uh, that we personally don't want. So how do we, how do you see, how do you see things like isolation, uh, showing up within the work environment? Cause I know one of the things that you, uh, bring forward in the book is a, a few different studies that actually, you know, are, are taken from the work environment to show the type of isolation that, that people are experiencing. Cause so can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. You know, one of the biggest findings from the book is that if you work remote, you're much less likely to want a long-term career at your company. So working remote Mm -hmm. impacts team and organizational commitment because if you're not seeing and hearing from people for a long duration of time, you don't feel as connected with them. And again, work is the work you do and who you do it with. And so if who you do it with are just weak ties instead of strong bonds, you're more likely to leave for, for a better situation with people that you're seeing more often. And so I think the work from home element to back to human and everything I'm researching is the most fascinating. Why? Because I work from home for eight years. So I had to, it's, I have a personal connection to it. Two is because the number one employee benefit now in the workplace globally for anyone from the ages of at least 22 to 35 or so is work flexibility. And a big part of work flexibility is the ability to work from home, telecommuting. Uh, so it's extremely big in our society. In the, in the study, we found a third of the global workforce works remote, yet two-thirds are disengaged. And so we have to be more mindful about what a remote worker is going through. And we have to promote more socialization through offsites, through video conferencing, through ways to connect with people rather than just receive emails and texts. You know, And so making the workplace more personal is only more valuable. And I think there are ways to make this work, right? Like I have two examples from the book. One uh, one was one of the leaders I interviewed. I interviewed 100 top young leaders from 100 top companies. And one said that they let remote workers start and, and lead the discussions uh, you know, on, on a conference call. And I think that's extremely valuable because you're empowering people who don't feel empowered. Because they work from home, you know, psychologically and realistically, they just don't feel empowered, right? Because they're not there with you. And so to empower them, I think is a really good step. The second thing is because because remote workers are more likely to leave, promoting socialization is so much more important. So like off-sites, we found 
our board. And we had one leader that would actually have a budget every year. He's based in New York, but would fly to all her remote sites to spend time with the remote workers and in remote sites so that she could build strong relationships and instill trust. You can't, how much can you possibly trust someone if you never see them? I mean, it's just mm. not going to happen, right? But because you pick up on so many other things and instill trust when you're face to face. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that's some like really great insight, even, even, even if you're not an entrepreneur, I think within the work environment, being able to utilize some of these tools can be so impactful for us to kind of think differently around, around leadership and around how leadership is sort of pivoting towards this really crucial space of connection. So where, where does this start? Because in the book, you actually, you, you talk about mastering self-connection. So can you elaborate on that and, and maybe why it's so important and why it was part of like the front-facing piece of the book? Yeah, it's a front-facing piece because I believe that if you don't have your, if you don't get yourself right, if you aren't fulfilled, which is chapter one, if you aren't productive in your own right, if you don't have everything together for yourself, you're not going to be able to be a good role model for your team. You're not going to be able to show them the way. You're not going to be able to lead them to a destination. And so I think focus on self, which reflects my last two books, is really important because, because if you're not the leader you need to be, then you're not going to be able to provide for the people around you and get them on that path with you following and, and connect. It's going to, you know, I talk about hiring later in the book. How are you supposed to hire if you don't know the type of people you want to hire? So like you have to figure your things out for yourself first and then you can provide so much more. Like for me personally, I've, I kind of know who I am, what I want to do, who I'm supposed to help. I have all of that in my head. I know my values and therefore it's easy for me to pick who to work with, who to hire, how to manage, how to lead. All of that stuff becomes much easier because I know what I'm about, right? And that's why I put such a focus of it early on about with productivity and fulfillment, these really important words, you know, in our world and about shared learning, you know, shared learning is kind of the bridge to part two of the book. Uh, chapter three ended up becoming the most popular chapter, even though I believe it's very simple. It's we can't learn in isolation anymore. The average relevancy of a learned skill is only five years. And so to keep up with the speed of business, we have to rely on each other and educate each other and support each other's learning and development. And together we can be smarter and more effective and relevant so that we can thrive in, in the current and future workplace. Um, and so to me, it's as simple as me finding an article that talks about men in loneliness and sending it to you because I thought of you first. It's, it could be that simple, but it's about creating that habit that every time you see something that can benefit one or more members of your team, you automatically share it. Or if someone's trying to accomplish something like building a website, let's say, and you know how to build a website, walking over or picking up the phone and say, hey, let me give you some tips, that can, it's invaluable. And then that person might have skills that could benefit you. So that's how you create a, a, very, a shared learning culture, an environment where everyone's supporting each other organically without it being forced. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because it seems like as industries, industries shift and move into, move into this more modern space where everything's moving so quickly and we're all interconnected through technology, you know, I, I think what you're saying is so powerful around focusing in on fulfillment and, and optimizing your productivity right in the very beginning because we seem to be moving more towards these purpose-based 
work environments where where people are really starting to ask rather you know really starting to ask the question of do i derive meaning from this do i derive fulfillment from this and that seems to be getting propelled and sort of pushed forward by you know the, i mean i think a lot of people would say the millennial generation so so where where does one start when looking internally within themselves in order to be a great leader on finding fulfillment with within the work that they do like what are some of the things that you recommend where people actually can start with that the truth, based on my experience, is experimentation, right? I only figured mm. out what made me fulfilled when I tried many things early in my career. You know, the fact that I had eight internships between high school and college. I started my first business sophomore year of college. I, you know, had a service job when I was 13 years old. All of that added up to me figuring out and becoming more self-aware. And while I'm not doing what I did back then, it gave me insight into what I liked, what I didn't like. And so I started to avoid things that I knew I wasn't good at or didn't enjoy, you know, and by process of elimination, by experiment, by having mentors, by, you know, putting things out there, I was able to figure out what made me fulfilled and then quadruple down on it. Right. And, but, yeah. but also, also commit to evolving as the times evolve. I think that's very important. And I've made mistakes too. I have made mistakes. I think my big mistake was what helped me build my career early on, which was blogging. I didn't replicate for Instagram early on. So I'm now just, I've only been building Instagram for like eight months, whereas I could have been doing it for like three or four years. And that would have really been a big deal. Uh, but I didn't, uh, you know, and this is, you know, less about, I guess, leadership and more about me realizing that, you know, what worked in one platform works almost exactly the same in this, the other platform. And so for me, staying relevant, being fulfilled is about recognizing what's working, what's not working and, and putting more of your energy into what's working as long as it aligns to who you are inside. Lean into who you are instead of trying to live up to the expectations of others. Everyone gets distracted based on what you know other people are doing when they should look more internally and see what can I pull out. And I think that by meeting the right people, by having the right experiences and working on the right projects, it brings out or they can bring out more of who you are. And once once you recognize that, that's the time when you want to put more of your energy into those things because that's what's going to make you unique and stand out, right? If you just copy the writing style of someone you admire, you're not going to stand out. You're just going to be a carbon copy of that person. Whereas if you create your own style, if you create, if you have your own set of values, if you create a company that is based on what you're really good at and what you where you think the need is you're just going to be much more successful and you're going to, you're going to feel better about it because it's unique to you. Hmm. Yeah. I like that. And I, well, I think what I appreciate is, you know, one of the things that I talk a lot about in the man talks community and with the guys that are, that are in the groups that we run is, is about filling your way to fulfillment. And I think that's kind of what you're saying here is like, if, you know, try things out, risk a little bit. Don't be so risk averse. Actually, uh, take some endeavors to figure out what it is that really fulfills you. And then once once you start to find those things, really start to bring those things forward into the work that you're doing, into the products that you're creating, into the team that you're you know building or managing or a part of. And, and that will be the sort of self-perpetuating 
uh, fulfillment wheel, you know, that you're bringing forward those things rather than trying to get something from the work environment or the team that you're working for. I, I think that's, that's really incredible, um, you know, insight. I want to, I want to ask a little bit about, about the productivity side of things. Cause I think this, you know, this word, this concept gets thrown around a lot and people are always in today's age with everything that we have going on. They're all, you know, everyone's trying to optimize the productivity. So um, maybe give us a little bit of context of, of the, the different approach that you take in your book and, and why it's so important. Yeah, I, I take an approach based on what's worked for other leaders, what's worked for me. So it's it's very personal and it's very interview-based. Um, it's interesting when it comes to productivity and cre- creativity, it's not just from the inside out. It's also the, it's also the people you surround yourself with that can bring out that productivity, that can make you more productive. I think technology can actually help us be more productive if we use it in the right way. We can use it to eliminate the work we don't want to do, like we just talked about. Right? You, you know, if you work in a corporation, conference uh, room booking software, calendar applications that help you schedule meetings, uh, chatbots that help with scheduling as well. That's you know really helpful. I think collaborative uh, instant messaging services like Slack can be very helpful for getting information out quick and brainstorming, uh, video conferencing for connecting with people at a, a more personal level because you get to see their face and hear their voice, not just uh, see texts and emails. Uh, so I think it's about being smart about what, how, when, and where you're using the technology to make you more productive because if you're overusing and misusing it, it ends up creating more work for you and making you less productive, which you know basically counterproductive in that regard. But I think what I do for productivity is every day I'm making a list of the things I need to accomplish that day and putting in order. I have a one, two, and three, right? I No more than three on a daily basis. And they all have to align up to my annual goals. And every year besides this past year when I'm with the book, I got a little bit too busy. But usually by January 1st, I have my goals for the upcoming year. I'm doing the, these research studies. I'm doing these interviews. I'm doing... You know, I'm going to these travel destinations because I don't just focus on the things uh, for my per- professional life. I also focus on personal things, right? Five professional, five personal goals for the most part. Mm. And I think that that drives a lot of my decision making. And and I believe that if we view our calendars as important, as, you know, we live and buy, die by our calendars, if it's not on the calendar you know, it doesn't exist, then we have to integrate our personal professional lives within our calendars, right? Because there's no real such thing as nine to five anymore. We do work all over the, you know, after office hours, on weekends, vacations, et cetera. So if work is going to creep into our lives, we have to creep our personal lives into our work lives. I think that's one of the, that's one of the big messages in that chapter that I convey is I think work life integration is is the new norm. It's what we need to embrace because balance is becoming too complicated and nothing's ever per, per, uh, perfectly balanced. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would agree with that. I think a lot of people are looking for those, you know, trying to find that balance now, especially whether, you know, whether they work for a company and they're taking their work home or, uh, you know, whether they are an entrepreneur or they're freelance. And I, I read something the other day that said that something like 45% of the workforce by 2025 is going to be freelance. And that was like a shocking 
that was a surprise to me, you know, just how many jobs are now becoming freelanced and outsourced and how many people are actually moving into a space of working from home or working remotely or freelancing for companies. So uh, I think what you're talking about is, is really essential. Um, so we are, we're almost out of time. So I, I kind of wanted to get some insight from you around building, you know, team connections, building connections within the work environment, uh, whether whether it's with clients or, or peers. What are some of the keys? What are some of the essentials that people need to know in this fast-paced environment of, of how to maintain and lead those connections? First off, I think we have to be smart about how, when, and where we're using this technology, right? So uh, I always go back to use cases. So if we're trying to brainstorm, let the technology, you know, get uh, guide you to a conference call or an in-person meeting where you can brainstorm and write on the board and, and come up with better ideas because there's nothing like brainstorming in person. Uh, you just come, I did the other day with my business partners, we come up with way better ideas than if we just emailed. But if you are trying to send an update to the whole team, then every Monday, maybe you send an update with the you know, three big achievements and the two things to focus on. And I think that can help align people, even though it's passive. Usually I, I tell people that emails need to be action oriented, but I think an, a nice update summary can be valuable. And I think anytime you're sending too many emails, recognize it and stop doing it because it's a sign that your message isn't getting across and that you should pick up the phone. And I think that not only should you meet with your team, but you should meet on an individual basis with the people you work with because everyone has different needs. Uh, while everyone needs to contribute to the greater team, people do have individual needs and aspirations and we need to account for those so that you can serve them so they're more comfortable serving you and there's trust and, and kind of a mutual relationship set up. Amazing, man. Well, I think that that is a great place to to leave off for today. Um, and I really appreciate you coming on the show. This was really insightful. I think it gives some good context into what people are facing within not just the, the work environment, but within their career and, and where to take things. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. And for everyone that's out there listening, that's tuned into this, into this episode and you're interested in learning more, definitely check out Back to Human, how great leaders create connection in the age of isolation. We'll have the links to the book and to Dan's work in the show notes. Uh, so definitely check that out as soon as possible because there's some great uh, research some great interviews and just really great content for you and your career. And don't forget to leave us a rating and review on iTunes or Spotify or Google Play, whatever platform you listen to us on, and share this episode with just one person. It goes a long way to getting us into the ears and on the phones of other people. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Join me next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual. Mm-hmm.